0: The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer
1: in the UK. Hello, my name's Anne Hook and I work at Lymphoma Action and I'm delighted to be joined today by Katie. Hello, Katie. Hello, Anne. It's nice to see
0: you. Can you tell me about your diagnosis of lymphoma? Oh, Anne, it was quite a journey, I can tell you. So I'd been feeling tired and run down for quite a long time, but in that very sort of non-specific way that I didn't really know what what was going on. And then at the same time, I was having a lot of gynecological problems and I was um, recommended for a hysterectomy. And as part of that, they found out I was severely anemic and so on and so forth. Anyway, I had the hysterectomy to cut a very long story short. And I think everybody thought, well, that's sorted all that out. She'll be on the up and up from now on. And then as I was recovering and I was recovering really quickly, I've got quite dry skin anyway. And I suddenly had a sort of lots of itching on my abdomen. And there was some really severe black crusting there. And coincidentally, I had a nurse friend coming to stay that weekend. And she said, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that in my life. You must go to a doctor immediately. And she's been like like nursing for 40 years or whatever. Mm. And then I went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And so that all sort of went on for two or three weeks. And then eventually my GP referred me to I was being treated at University College um, Hospital in London and referred me to the on duty dermatologist. Um, and she said, I've never seen anything like that in my life either. So then I just went through, and they took photos of it. I've been in these dermatology magazines, apparently. But we went through just like endless tests. And I think the way it kind of works is it's like a process of elimination. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so they test for X. And she, the dermatologist said, I'm pretty s- certain you've had a severe allergy to something. And then over a period of weeks, when I'd had scans and blood tests and this, that, and the other, um, she worked out that I'd probably had a very severe reaction to heparin, which was the blood thinning drug I was taking post the operation. Mm -hmm. And that's where they eventually, um, where all roads eventually led to lymphoma. And actually, when I got the diagnosis, the doctor who gave me the diagnosis said that people who don't have a history of allergies, which I didn't, you know, when when something like what happened to me, which is very rare, um, happens, there's always nearly... He said nearly all rows always lead back to bloods at the end of the days. But it just took a while to get there. But, you know, actually having a diagnosis was a... You know, I mean, people say this a lot, don't they, that, you know, having a diagnosis is in some ways is re- reassuring, because then you really know what you're dealing with. And actually being a really rare case is also actually quite helpful because every time I go into the hospital, they still say to me, Oh, my God, you're the woman who had the extreme allergic reaction to heparin. So I don't have to start the whole story again and keep re-explaining myself. So, um, yes, yeah, so that, that, that's how I got to where I got to.
1: And what were you diagnosed with, um, Katie? What what was the diagnosis for you? It was a
0: non-Hodgkin's um, lymphoma. And then the way it was explained to me was that, you know, it was a little bit, I don't know, it's probably a bad comparison, but by like being HIV positive or having diabetes, that, you know, there were certain things you could do. It was a chronic condition, but it was something that would um, develop very slowly and over time. Mm -hmm. And actually, that isn't what happened to me. I can't remember how many months it was, but I went in for a routine three monthly you know update and then after I got home the hospital phoned and said there'd been a quite a significant change in my bloods so I think that was probably a bit more of a shock actually than the original diagnosis because I thought well you know I'm you know I'm middle-aged I know lots of people with chronic conditions I can cope with a chronic condition but then suddenly to move from being a long-term chronic thing to being something that needed dealing with which is quite a different space to be in I think
1: and had you heard of, it's Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia yeah. that you have, isn't it? And yeah. had you heard of it before? Cause it's, um, it is a rare one and with a very complex name as well, isn't it?
0: No, never heard of it. Didn't Didn't really know anything about blood cancer, lymphoma. I don't think, I mean, maybe somebody I went to school with had leukemia and that's about it. So my knowledge base was about, you know, zero really.
1: Did you find it straightforward explaining to
0: people your condition? I think I found it a bit, well, A, because it did have taken so long to do the diagnosis combined with the hysterectomy. I did actually feel that after 18 months of all this, everybody was sick to death of hearing about my latest developments. And everything was going forward, one step back, two steps. But I think um Sort of previously, about ten years previous. Previously, I'd been diagnosed with breast cancer, and that was a really simple diagnosis to explain because everybody understands what it is. Everybody understands that it involved well. In my case, it was a mastectomy and it was an operation, and people feel, you know give you flowers and send you cards and all the rest of it whereas you know trying to explain a chronic condition that nobody's ever heard of including the person who's got it mm. and not really knowing how it's going to manifest itself and then going through a whole load of stuff about well it's going to it's just a chronic condition you know we don't need to talk about it all the time so then it's not just a chronic condition it's actually something that needs treating and you know it's just it, it you know it is it, different to having a sort of as I say something like breast cancer or hysterectomy where it's, you know people can see it they can visualize it they can imagine it I, yeah I do think it's a different thing.
1: And can we talk about your treatment um, because I, I know you um, have ended up on a clinical trial but how was it presented to you or were you told that you were having standard treatment? and then they suggested a trial or was the trial suggested from the beginning? Can you sort of run us through that a bit?
0: Yeah so I think I, well I mean just to sort of, pre, I'm very happy with the trial so for me it was all very positive. I think I was actually very lucky with timing so when I got the call from the hospital saying that it was you know it wasn't something that they could leave for years and years and years and years and I needed treatment and then when I went in it was just before lockdown actually and they said oh well, we think we've got this clinical trial starting do you think you might be interested and I said yes then um then we all went into lockdown and everything was a sort of bit weird as everyone knows but then actually when I went back to have whatever my next treatment was um, the trial was back on so they said did I want to um, join it and I said yes I would like to join it please so um, so I, th- I think I was in the right place at the right time really.
1: Mm. And you said that very immediately would you like to be involved in a clinical trial you said yes was it that clear in your mind at the time was it something you immediately thought it was something you wanted to do or did you have to research it?
0: Um, I mean, obviously, I wanted to find out more about it. But I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not somebody who spends hours researching things on the web or anything. I just don't. I kind of work on the basis that, you know, I go to, a, uh, you know, I my doctors are excellent. I'm, you know, at a world class hospital being treated in a world class cancer centre. And if they don't know what's best for me, then I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm a bit up the creek without a paddle really and I kind of work on the assumption that you know that they know what the options are and they did present not going on the trial as well as an option I have to say and I, I think I also feel personally very strongly everyone in this country goes on about the NHS and it's got like status but you know the only reason it's so brilliant is because people do participate in trials and things like that which helps clinicians and people working in the NHS to build their knowledge base and to work out how best to treat us. And, you know, I think we all kind of need to play a bit of a part in that.
1: And was it very clearly explained to you about the trial, did you feel?
0: Yes, I did. And the the, the way it, it was explained to me was that the standard treatment for my particular condition is chemotherapy. The alternative on the trial is a non-chemo-based treatment programme. Um, and it was explained to me that, because it's where I was randomly allocated, that at the least I would get the basic treatment that I was going to be given anyway, mm. chemo package. Um, and the other package, which is the non-chemo package, had been used for people with my condition, but as a secondary treatment as opposed to a primary treatment. So it wasn't like it was something that had never been tested or tried out before. And it was also explained to me that whether I ended up in the chemo group or the non-chemo group, then I would get lots of extra test, one, well, maybe not lots of, but I would get extra tests and supervision and support and resource, um, obviously because they need to comply with the terms of the trial. But also to I think also to try and keep people in the trial as well, because, of course, people drop off and slip off. And, you know, and and I ended up in the non chemo group and it's a five year commitment. So it's kind of quite a long commitment. So, I, you know, I can imagine people do drop off on occasion.
1: Yeah. How soon after you'd entered the trial, were you aware of which arm of the randomised trial that you were on?
0: So basically, um, when I said I was interested in going on the trial, then I had to go through all these various medical tests to make sure I was fit enough to go on the trial, which were the things that I'm sure people who are listening to this are used to, like scans and blood tests and whatever. And once I was told that I I could be accepted onto the trial, then before I started the treatment, that's when I got to know. So, so, you know, the, the, the chemo package was that one way of being treated and I was on the non-chemo package which was a completely different mix mm. of pharmacological drugs and treatments so I obviously had to know before I started because I would be I was doing something completely different so so I knew but I i mean I have to say to be quite if I'm going to be quite honest I was kind of quite keen not to go down the chemo route but actually I, I was put in the non-chemo group so for me I was kind of quite relaxed about it all but actually Now I'm into the trial. I don't think it would have made any difference because the real benefits to me um, are not so much about the different treatments, but it's about, you know, the research nurses are amazing. You know, the extra support you get, the extra checks you get, the extra testing you get. You know, you have to keep a diary and all that sort of stuff. But, you you, you know, you sign up to getting lots of extra testing. And that, for me, is a good thing. You know, I just email my research nurses, which is just completely brilliant. Mm.
1: And are you being treated at the same hospital you would
0: have been treated for the chemotherapy? Yeah, I'm being treated at University College Hospital and it has a dedicated melan cancer centre. So I am very lucky that it's a dedicated one site treatment centre where I get my medical treatment. But there's, you know, I can also get information. I can get counselling there. I can get complementary therapies. I can get advice on benefits or wearing a wig or any other number of things you know they, they and there's a big charity there so they try to make it part you know a big part of the community
1: and you said you felt very supported and you've mentioned the extra tests and checks do you feel that uh, that's been really beneficial or has that been quite a lot of extra work for you maybe by, by having to go to the hospital more frequently
0: yeah yeah of course you know you have to turn up and you know I, you know, I think it's fair game. You know, they're giving me world-class treatment. You know, if I have to take an extra day off work or whatever to go and be scanned, it's mm. kind of not, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I don't think the demands are oner- too onerous, to be quite honest. When the clinical trial was explained to you, were you
1: fully aware that you could leave it at any time if you'd wanted to? Was that made clear to you?
0: Oh, Oh, yes. I mean, I think it's been a very iterative, you know, ongoing conversation. I've never felt under any pressure to do anything that, you know, I didn't want to do or whatever. And I've always been told that, you know, whatever, I would still receive the basic package of the chemotherapy based treatments.
1: And I hear from people that the paperwork to go on a clinical trial is fairly complicated. What was your experience?
0: I, I don't remember it as being particularly um complicated but my day job is a bureaucrat so I probably wouldn't find it very complicated because I'm used to filling in bureaucratic paperwork so you know probably what I would say was it's, it's not a it's not a process where the doctor says to you do you want to go on a clinical trial you say yes and then it's all signed sealed and delivered the next day there's quite a few steps Mm. in between saying yes I'm interested to yes you're accepted Mm. so you know there's lots as I say lots of blood tests lots of scans lots of biopsies lots of this lots of that Um, so it's not an you know a a precise process of filling in a form ticking a box and off you go Mm. so I can understand that people might find that a bit you know that waiting period a bit slow and then of course when you enter the program you know, as with everything you have never done before, it's always a bit nerve wracking, isn't it? And, um, you know, I didn't really know what what was going to happen to me until I got there and did it. That was that was fine for me. And, you know, I kind of, to be quite honest, I would rather have been doing in, in my case, I was having sort of immunotherapy, which is delivered like chemotherapy, but it's a different drug that then, you know, just sort of stumbling along every other month having more bloods and not really knowing where it was going to go or whatever so i sort of feel that it really enabled me to take a step forward to a place where i would be able to think about how it was going to be for me in the long term
1: what in your opinion have been the biggest advantages and what if any have been any of the disadvantages in participating you know
0: um the i mean the biggest advantages for me uh, I'm being treated in a world-class centre. Um, as I say, I think the research nurses are amazing. I mean, they are, the for me, the value added because you would get a consultant anyway, but you probably wouldn't get a research nurse anyway. And I've got direct access to three of them, which is just brilliant. I think probably the downside to me is because I'm on the non-chemo bit of the trial is that and I have to take millions of pills um, all every day is that there's been quite a lot of side effects that change all the times. And actually, oddly enough, my consultant said to me that some people just prefer chemo because it's a short sharp. So you get, you know, you've got your six months, you block it out of your diary, off you go, you do it. And then that's that. Whereas this is five years. And, you know, the side effects change as my body gets used to the drugs. So I've had a fair degree of hair loss which hasn't been a huge thing for me because I've got very thick hair Um, but I've had spots all over my face which at the age of 60 is a bit of a downer because I even managed to avoid them when I was a teenager. Um, I've had very soft nails and splitting nails and um, I've had very swollen ankles and you know none of these things are you know amazingly painful but collectively they're all a bit debilitating mm-hmm. and um, oddly enough because I've been working at home all the way through the pandemic you know I haven't had to worry about can I get my high heels on in the morning I can just put my slippers on and come downstairs and do my day's work but if I had to be getting you know up having a shower putting on a frock putting on my tights putting on my makeup going to the office I think I could have struggled with all that sort of side of it a lot more than I have done. Mm.
1: And how is it going so far? Because presumably
0: they're doing tests as you go along. Well, everything's going in the right direction. And, you know, so there have been improved, you know, everything is improving. Um, And I understand that because the effects of the drugs I take are cumulative, um, you know the trajectory you're on is the trajectory you're like to likely to continue on for the at least the interim being. So that that's all really good news. Some of the side effects because the main drugs I'm on, they can be um, they can have an impact on your respiratory system and your cardiac system. And because I've had very swollen ankles, they were very worried that they, it was having a disproportionate effect on my cardiac system. But you know, again, one of the great things about being on a trial is they got me in to have a full heart examination, probably within a week or two, you know, so I was right there to make, yeah. So, and in fact, it's all fine. And it's just something I've got to kind of cope with and work out another coping strategy for. And, you know, I think it probably depends about how you are as a person and what your lifestyle's like. Of course, I'd rather not have swollen ankles and a spotty face, but for me, it's not the end of the world. And I'm quite a pragmatic person. And I can work out how to deal with things. But I would like to be as active as I was, maybe not in quite the same way. But, you know, the mobility thing and the swollen ankles thing has been my big downer.
1: Katie, what would you say to somebody who is considering um, getting involved in a clinical trial or entering a clinical trial?
0: What I would say is, well, obviously, you need to feel comfortable about it within yourself. But I would say be open to it, not just for yourself. Um, But also because expanding knowledge within the health system is a really good thing for patients and clinicians alike. And also altruism, we all know, is very good for your mental health. So you might have other benefits out of it as well. And, you know, we've just seen we've just lived through a pandemic where there were no end of volunteers being tested on the vaccines and so on and so forth. And without those people, none of us would be on our third jabs by now. I can tell you that for nothing. And, you know, I know somebody who is participating in a trial currently for people who do have blood conditions and are immune suppressed. And, you know, when and I'm very grateful to him going through that trial because I will probably find out more about my own status as a result of his direct involvement. And, you know, everybody uses these terms very casually, like partnership, working in partnership with your Health provider and whatever. Well, you know, partnership is about doing stuff. It's not just about sitting down and talking about stuff. I know I feel confident that these medical trials are incredibly well regulated and supervised. And I've experienced firsthand, you know, the extra supervision and surveillance I get. Trials are a very serious business and they have to be properly supervised and managed and led. So I, you know, I respect all that. And what did your family think about you? Um, entering a clinical trial I've got a friend called Nick and if I ever want to find out about anything scientific he can't think of anything better than spending all weekend going through a randomized control trial brochure and working out the odds of this that and the other so I tend to take advice from him on these things and I think his view was on balance it was worth doing so I went with it What do my family think? Well, to be quite honest, Dan, I I think in a way, as I said right at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I just don't think they really know anything about the condition. So I don't really know. I mean, I think they probably just felt reassured that I was being treated at a really good hospital. I think that was probably their reassurance. And if the clinicians thought it was the best thing, then I should go with it. But, you know, I think part of the, you know, the thing with these blood conditions... Maybe I'm in a minority, but I I really think the awareness and the levels of understanding is very, very low. And I certainly didn't understand what it was all about until I was diagnosed.
1: Katie, I believe you're one year into your treatment now. And I just wondered whether there was a very clear roadmap because the clinical trial is a five-year trial. And I just wonder whether it's very clear to you all the stages and how it potentially will end.
0: Um, and I don't know how it's how it will end, but it's all going in the right direction. You know, all my bloods are improving quite significantly. I mean, my main challenge at the moment is to work out how I deal with the physical side effects of the drugs. Um, but also my consultants tell me that, you know, over time, those side effects will lessen just because they're very strong drugs. And it's taking me a while to get used to them. Um, in terms of the five years no we I mean I, I don't really think like that anymore I think I just sort of think you know I've just kind of got to work out how I'm going to deal with the here and now you know the physical my you know the thing I find the most difficult at the moment is the physical limitations you know I'm somebody who you know used to walk my dogs every day and whatever whereas actually now going for long walks is not well no, I can't do it so I can go for short walks but I can't go for long walks so you know you just kind of have to adapt your life a bit and um, and think about how you're going to manage what you've got to deal with and then you've got to work out what you can do to make things easier for the future so I think that's how I feel at the moment. And you've got a very
1: clear picture of what the expectation is in terms of how regularly you're going to have follow-up appointments how often
0: you will have reviews of your drugs and so on? So I have um, three monthly watch and wait appointments. And then in between those appointments, if they want to check that my medication isn't having an adverse effect on whichever bit of my body, then I have additional checks and so on and so forth. But you know, they, they, they don't happen all the time. I mean, I have to stress that normally I'm on a, you know, my regular thing is a three month watch and wait. And then, you know, I feel very reassured, like when I was having problems with swollen ankles and they did a whole heart thing to make sure it wasn't having a adverse effect on my heart. Yes, of course, it's a pain to go and hang around a hospital for a day and have, you know, be prodded and poked and what have you. But, you know, I feel very reassured that they're on the game and they're looking at what's happening to my body and trying to minimise the risks as as they happen rather than waiting until it's too late, really. Did the
1: diagnosis impact on you whether that was emotionally or practically would you say?
0: So I think for me it was all very weird because it all happened as we went into lockdown um, which I think you know obviously me you know it was um, so your life wasn't normal anyway so I was getting used to a lot of change during that period and I think also you know I had been going in and out of the hospital for months having all these tests trying to work out what what was the matter with me so in some ways it was a bit of a a relief in other ways I was so busy adapting to um, dealing with lockdown and I work full time and I have quite a demanding job working from home and dealing with all that so in this odd sort of way I don't think you know my mind really has really called didn't initially really catch up with it and then I had a period of you know when I was actually having um, having to go into the hospital to have intravenous treatments all the time so you know between keeping a job going and having the treatments and getting used to Covid and being socially isolated I kind of that that was kind of my life for a year really and I think probably it's only now that I'm beginning to think more about the long-term impact you know as we get you know, more back to normal and we're doing more socialising and, you know, to an extent lockdown in a way has kind of suited me quite well because I've been able to lock myself away a bit, but that I can't do that forever. And, um, you know, I'm going to have to sort of start applying my mind to how am I going to sort of, you know, deal with my diagnosis and deal with my normal life and, you know, for example, we go on a walking holiday every year in Devon, and we mm-hmm. went this year, and obviously I couldn't do the walks, you know, and that's a big change for me. Um, but also, it's a big change for the people I go on the walking holiday with, you know, that they, you know, it's difficult for them to know what to do. You know, do they say, Are oh, you all right? Why don't we do a really short walk instead of a long walk? And, you know, it's all those sorts of things, that I think, for me that you have to think about. And I think also the other thing I, There's two other things actually that I sort of think is, A, I've realised this is a serious illness. It's not something a quick operation is going to fix. And it's something I've got to work out how to deal with long-term, not short-term. And I think the other thing that has really struck me, which might seem a bit random, um, as somebody who's now had so many blood transfusions, I can't tell you, you know, I had no idea that the majority of blood that's, that are donated in this country go to cancer patients, not victims of road traffic accidents or whatever. And whenever anybody says to me, what can I do to help you, which, of course, people routinely do, um, I always say give blood. That's an amazing message and a
1: really important one as well, Katie? Can we ask you a couple of additional questions? What one thing has helped you with your lymphoma and living with
0: lymphoma? What one thing? Oh, well, medicine has kept me alive. <laughs> what brings you joy? What brings me joy? Oh, my friends, my, my dog, my husband, good food brings me joy. Just, you know, I have a, quite an interesting life, I think. I don't get bored anyway. Once I start getting bored, then I'll get really worried about myself.
1: Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action
1: website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk.
0: Lymphoma Action, inform, support, Connect.